All right, this evening we are going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 10, and we will begin 2 Samuel chapter 11. Shall we start with a word of prayer? Our Father, it is our privilege to call you our Father because of your Son, who has enabled us by his wonderful grace to call you Abba. And the breath that comes from our hearts is the breath of the sons and daughters of God, breath that has been put into us by your spirit, the very same spirit that breathed out the words of this passage tonight. We thank you that we have been given a sure word. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is not subject to the fallibility and iniquity of the kingdoms of this world. We thank you that he is a king in perfect righteousness and sinlessness and that he has brought us into his presence with a superabundance of the blessings of heaven itself. Allow us, O Lord, even as we reflect upon the disturbing parts of David's life, allow us to reflect upon the David who will never disappoint, nor will he ever fail. For he is indeed King of Kings and our precious Savior. We ask these things in his blessed name. Amen. Now I want you to note that Second Samuel 10 is parallel to First Chronicles 19. And there will be a few details from First Chronicles 19 that will supplement the narrator in 2 Samuel 10, and we'll note those as we come to them. I ask you to turn to the map to begin this evening in your packet as we orient ourselves to the geography of the 10th chapter. The two maps that are there have a slightly different focus, but nonetheless remind us of the names of the nations who will be paraded before us in this 10th chapter. We begin with the Ammonites on the Transjordanian side of uh, Israel, the uh, east side of the Jordan River. You see it there uh, with the circle around Rabbath Ben Ammon, which means Raboth of the sons of Ammon. And I'll make a further comment about that location in a moment or two. Uh, Next, we have uh, in our text Aram or the Arameans. Does anyone know what uh, we call that country today? The nation of the Arameans. 
Bill? It is Syria and still has its capital in Damascus. Uh, That is the region of the ancient, the modern region, the ancient Aramean nation. Uh, Beth Rehov, which is there to the west of Damascus. Uh, Zobah, which is just north of Damascus. Uh, These are all parts of the Aramean Literal uh, Aramean uh, nationality and language uh, was uh, common uh, in those regions, as well as Mayaka. And then we return to the Transjordanian side of uh, the geography with Tov, uh, the last of the countries or little provinces that is mentioned in this 10th chapter. Now, if any of you had a chance to look at this 10th chapter, uh, were you impressed by anything as you read through the account or uh, noted the nations that we just listed? And where was that, Pete? We have a little sense of deja vu. I know a week has gone by, and that's seven days, but it's a good thing I'm not grading you. In my courses, you're not allowed to forget anything in three years. All right. So chapter 10, as Pete pointed out, is a reflection on nations that David had conquered, and it is parallel to chapter 8. So there is a bit of a deja vu here. These nations that we just listed appear in both chapters, and both chapters are describing campaigns of David against these regions. In between chapter 8 and 10, of course, is chapter 9, and so we have a little sandwich feature, 9, which is inside Israel, is bracketed by that which is outside of Israel for the most part, chapters 8 and 10, uh, David's military campaigns. Now, I want you to keep that little bracket in mind. We want to look at that uh, as we uh, move along. Now, uh, going back to the first page of your handout, uh, I have a uh, note about the structure or an outline of the structure in which I begin with the Latin term casus belli. And uh, my Latin uh, scholar is not here tonight. How is she, incidentally, Don? She's okay. Thank you. That, that, pardon? She's a little gun. She, would, she wouldn't come with you. Oh, it's too bad. I urged her to do that when I called her last week, but she was. But at any rate, we missed Margaret. Uh, <clears throat> cause of the war. Cause of the war. Very good, Pete. Okay, the cause of the war. You see the, the English word belligerent in belli there, and uh, cause from casus. Uh, the cause of the war in chapter 10 is described in those first five verses. Then in verses 6 to 14, we have the defeat of the Ammonites and the Arameans. Now, it is distinguished from verses 15 to 19, which is the final defeat of the Arameans, so that there is a kind of progression in the structure 
of uh, this book. Now, all of this activity is preparing the way for the opening verse of chapter 11, verse 1. And if you notice that verse, you read there that uh, David uh, sent out uh, his army to besiege Rabbah. Rabbah. Now, going back to your map, uh, Rabbah is Rabbath Ben Amon. <clears throat> That's the <clears throat> place where <clears throat> Rabbah was located uh, in the ancient world. That's <clears throat> the name <clears throat> that we pick up from chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> These campaigns then in chapter 10 are solidifying David's hold upon the Ammonite and Aramean nations <clears throat> so that he can turn his attention to Rabbah, which is the capital of the Ammonites, and is still a vital city today. What's the name of this city today? Ah, you don't know your Middle Eastern geography, and yet you see it almost every night on the news, or at least you hear about events in these regions. This is the city of Amman in Jordan. It is the modern capital of Amman, of Jordan rather, and it is one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the history of the world. There are those that believe it goes all the way back into the third millennium BC and has been continually occupied since those very ancient times. All right, the defeat of the Arameans and the Ammonites <clears throat> opens the way to Rabbah. And we've noticed in chapter 11, verse 1, <clears throat> that that name appears. And I want you to turn to chapter 12, verse 26. And what do you read? In chapter 12, verse 26, we read Rabbah once again. And also the phrase sons of Ammon, which also appears in chapter 11, verse 1. So we have this duplicate parallel in 2 Samuel 11, 1, with chapter 12, 26, phrases or events which are precisely duplicated. In fact, the siege of Rabbah that David launches, that Joab launches in chapter 11, verse 1, is concluded in chapter 12, verse 26. And what do we have sandwiched in between? David and Bathsheba. All right, now we're looking at an emerging structural paradigm in which, I don't need to thank you very much. Oops, don't put that there. All right. uh, (laughs) uh, 
Notice the bookend device that the narrator has placed around the David and Bathsheba incident. He's framed it by the siege of Rabah, which initiates the David and Bathsheba narrative and concludes the David and Bathsheba narrative, and he does it in exact parallel language. Rabah, sons of Ammon, Rabah, sons of Ammon, and in between, David and Bathsheba. So, this narrative bookend device is featuring David and Bathsheba as a particular incident in the career of David, and we're going to have to ask ourselves why our narrator does this. Why doesn't he just finish off the siege of Rabah in the first part of the 11th chapter? We'll try to answer that as we go along. The theater of war swirls around the swirling adultery, the swirling adulterous tryst between David and Bathsheba. You must pay attention to what your narrator is doing. He is teaching you something by the way he frames his story. All right, so we have the prospective narrative layer dimension. I say prospective, I mean from chapter 10, as we look at this siege frame bookend, we're looking ahead, prospective, looking forward. What about a retrospective narrative layer dimension? All right, let's take a look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 10. And consider this verse in terms of that which is proximate and that which is remote. Now, first of all, perhaps we need to define the word proximate. What does the word proximate mean? And from what Latin word does it arise? Now, our Latin expert tonight is Pete. Andrew? Proxima. Proxy. Proximus, yes, proximus. Very good. And what does it mean, Andrew? Uh, proximus. <laughs> <laughs> no, in Latin is a noun, and it means what? Near. It means neighbor. It is a Latin word for neighbor. And, of course, your neighbor is somebody who is nearby. So proximate is something which is nearby. And remote from the Latin remotus, which means... Far away or removed. Okay, so we're going to look at verse 2 in terms of what is proximate and remote. Right, proximate in this verse is what? What is nearby? In terms of uh, retrospective dimension. Okay, notice the key word in that verse. What is it? That is hesed, right, kindness. It is the Hebrew word hesed, which we talked about last week. Does that give you a clue as to what is proximate? Retrospectively, not prospectively? Pardon? Mephibosheth, yes. It is David's hesed, or his kindness to Mephibosheth, which is a continuation of the theme which is picked up here, 
in chapter 10 of the uh, nearby kindness of David to Mephibosheth projects or reminds of a remote, a more further removed hesed or kindness. And what was that? Or what? Yeah, what was that? It is past tense. The remote has said is the kindness retrospectively that, as David says, his father, that is Nahash, his father had shown to him, that is to David. All right, so we have the proximate kindness in chapter 9, the hesed to Mephibosheth. David is describing a remote hesed or kindness that Nahash's father, Hanan's father, showed to him, namely Nahash. When did this happen? What is the story? What's behind David's reference here? They had peace or a treaty. Pardon? They had peace or a treaty. Uh, on what basis? Yes. <laughs> You're not alone, Ben. Nobody can find it. <laughs> All right. The only context for which we have. Kay, this is your question. I think you even answered this a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago. See, I've got a good memory. But uh, <clears throat> this story about Nahash. All right. It's not ringing a bell. And... Uh, <clears throat> It had to do with Jabesh Gilead. That's right. That's where you came uh, to the head of the class that night. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm assuming you still want to be at the head of the class tonight, okay? Okay. <laughs> do you remember, you remember the Jabesh Gilead story and Nahash? Well, Saul was king. It was when Saul was king. Very good. Go ahead. He was going to come and conquer these people or, or not if they allowed their eye to put out. He had threatened the nation or the city of Jabesh Gilead with gouging out their eyes, namely Nahash. And so Saul came to their defense and protected them and delivered them from that threat. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Well, obviously, that is a story which is before David. So what is David talking about when he says, Hanan's father, Nahash, showed kindness to me? And Ben, he hunted around in his concordance and probably read through the whole book of First and Second Samuel up to this chapter, and he couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, no, none of the commentators can either. None of the scholars can either. So we have a bit of a, a challenge here, which also reflects upon the name Nahash. Is the Nahash mentioned here in 10.2 the same Nahash of... Uh, the Ammonites in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel. And I do think it's an honest question because we know that in some cases a dynastic name would be passed down through a royal family. And so it's conceivable that 1 Samuel 11 is Nahash the first and this fellow is Nahash the second or third or something. And the kindness that he showed to David is not mentioned specifically anywhere else in the David narrative. But if you were speculating, if you were trying to suggest what may be behind David's statement here, what would you put forth? Maybe when he, no, he didn't go there. I was thinking when he was fleeing from 
Very good. You're at the head of the class. In fact, I'm going to put you on top of the head of the class. Excellent, Kay. Yes, if we're going to guess about what David may be referring to, we think of the time when David was in flight, in flight from Saul, and he even crossed the Jordan in order to escape. Remember, he took his parents to Moab and sequestered them because of the connection with the house of David and the house of Jesse all the way back to Ruth and Boaz. Consequently, it makes logical sense that David's reference may be, may be to an event which is not otherwise recorded, but a kindness that Nahash showed when he was on the run. That's the best we can do because Ben's already scoured it the rest of the way and he couldn't find anything better. And so consequently, you either take what I've suggested or ask for your money back. But since you didn't pay any money, there are no refunds. Go ahead, Ben. How is it eschatologically? How is it eschatologically? Chronologically. If it, if it is chronological, it would fall into the period when David is on the run before he is anointed king in Hebron. In other words, it's not a contemporaneous event. He's referring to something in the past that that uh, Nahash showed kindness to him, okay? not something that is immediate. But because he has died, so he sends this embassy to the funeral. Are you still a little puzzled? No, because this fleeing of Absalom. Uh, the what? He had to flee because of Absalom. Isn't that way later? Yes, that is way later. So how can you refer to it now? Well, I'm referring to the flight from Saul. In, 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 as Kay pointed out, when he was trying to escape from Saul, threatening his life and you know running through various wilderness locales and even crossed over the Jordan, it's possible that that's what's uh, there's an event here that that uh, coincides with that flight. All right, now the, the parallel between the proximate and remote is that David extends kindness to one of his own countrymen, chapter 9, Mephibosheth. And here, David mentions that kindness had been extended by a foreigner to him, and he reciprocates. So he's going to extend kindness to Hanun and to and show condolences or proper diplomatic uh, uh, pro, uh, protocol uh, at the death of Hanun's father. And so... He sends an embassy. He sends a, uh, a envoy, a group of envoys, uh, bearing these condolences, which is still done on state occasions. Uh, many of you will, uh, of course, remember the international uh, 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 people that came to Ronald Reagan's funeral, for instance, and have come to other funerals of presidents and uh, uh, famous uh, political leaders in the United States, and we reciprocate vice versa. <clears throat> All right, so this type of uh, uh, procedure is uh, has a long history. <clears throat> but in verse 3, we find out that uh, David's envoys are not well received. Uh, they are, in fact, treated with insolence and suspicion, uh, evil counselors provoke evil leaders, and uh, <clears throat> consequently, uh, these 
uh, princes who can, who are the counselors to uh, Hanun the king belong to what I call the Bermuda Triangle theory of history. That is, they find conspiracies under every rock and manipulators in every trilateral arrangement. Well, uh, they are to be as easily dismissed as the advocates of that uh, nonsense of the trilateral conspiracy. <clears throat> but nonetheless, they humiliate David's envoys. <clears throat> Uh, they give them the half-and-half half treatment. That is, they shave half their beards and they cut off half of their clothes and send them back to David in shame. David, in verse 5, shows kindness to his own envoys. He tells them, you don't have to come home until your beard grows and, of course, until you get a new set of clothes. All right. So, verse 6 <clears throat> The sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David. Now, that's a, uh, a fairly uh, <clears throat> dumbed-down version of what the Hebrew says here. Hebrew is really quite graphic. Ammon saw that they'd made themselves stink before David. In other words, <clears throat> these guys were stinkers, and they smelled like stinkers, and they knew that that smell was coming up into the nose of David, and therefore they decided that they were in trouble, and indeed they were. So, notice what we have in verse 6. <clears throat> the sons of Ammon saw, and then in verse 14, the sons of Ammon saw. We have another bracketing device which frames this section of the narrative, and that's the reason under your structural outline we've identified verses 6 to 14 as the second narrative unit in this chapter. It is framed by a parallel parallelism of uh, term. Now, in verse 7, David sends Joab. And in verse 14... Joab returns from being sent. Once again, we have a reflective parallelism here uh, in the movement of David's army and his uh, general or commander-in-chief. Now, this battle, which is described with the uh, Ammonites, is actually a, by a battle according to 1 Chronicles 19, verse 7, that occurs at the city of Medeba. Now, if you look at your map again, you will find Medeba, south of Rabath ben Ammon. That is not mentioned in the Samuel narrative, and so we pick up an extra uh, piece of data and information. It helps us uh, plot the geography of this conflict. All right, so David has sent out Joab to avenge the humiliation of his envoys at the hands of the presumptuous and arrogant Ammonites. Joab is accompanied by Abishai, who is his, his brother, okay? And are these the only two brothers in his family? 
Uh, you're asking the question of the professor? Yes. <laughs> that is correct. Who killed him? The other man that was killed. Now, now, Kate, you're, you're coming down from the top above the top of the class. I, you're, you're slipping gradually here. Abner. Abner killed, what was his name? Asahel. Asahel, very good. So the three brothers of Zeruiah are Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel has already bitten the dust, and Abner, who uh, executed him or killed him, actually didn't execute him, he killed him, was executed in turn by the feud that uh, Joab uh, waged between uh, him and uh, between himself and uh, Abner. All right, so Joab and Abishai remain in this position of military uh, leadership and go out to confront the Ammonites and the Arameans or the Syrians. Now, in verse 9, we find the position of the protagonists and antagonists. And then in verses 9 and 10, actually the end of 9 and 10, we have the deployment of those uh, forces, those troops. Notice the interesting thing here in verse 9. Joab realizes as he goes out uh, to battle, he is the protagonist and his antagonists are the Arameans and the Ammonites. Joab, as he goes out in verse 9, realizes that he's being squeezed. He's got the Arameans or the Syrians above him. He's got the Ammonites below him and he's in the middle. So the squeeze is on. Joab, realizing that he's going to get squished, decides to do what Caesar did, and that is divide and conquer. And so, at the end of verse 9 and verse 10, what he does is he creates a deployment of his army in which he faces the Arameans above him and... He places Abishai, his brother, over the troops, the other part of the troops, to face the Ammonites below him. We're not going to get squished. We're going to push him back with a division of our army and a deployment which will counteract the squeeze technique, the vice that is going to crush us if we don't do something to defend ourselves against it. It's, in fact, a masterstroke and leads to the defeat of both the Ammonites and the Assyrians, or I should say in the case of the Arameans or Assyrians, a provisional defeat. Now, why do I say a provisional defeat of the Syrians or the Arameans? What's the word provisional mean? Temporary. Very good. Very good. All Christians are members of the kingdom of heaven, provisionally. Why do we say that? Because... Pardon? Too, 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 many, too many... There's a confusion of tongues here. 
difference between the visible and invisible church? Uh, provisional, meaning. If you don't sin? If you don't sin, no. <laughs> Provisional, it belongs to you now. Now in part, but it's not fully. But it is not fully or consummately. 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 Yeah, consummately. It means not completely consummated. <clears throat> in other words, it is provisional and real in that provisional sense. You really have the presence or power of the kingdom of heaven because you have the power of the age to come, which has been unleashed upon you through the grace of Christ, the resurrected Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But you are not in the consummate form of that kingdom of heaven, which is heaven itself. So you look forward to a final consummation, or you look forward to a face-to-face beatification. That is, you see him as he is at death, and then at the resurrection of the body, and the reunion of the body and soul, then the full glorification of body and soul in the consummate kingdom of God. So we we use this term provisional to mean that it belongs to us now, but not fully yet. Now in realization, now in principle, now with all the benefits of grace, but not fully as we shall experience it uh, when we shall know him even as we are known. Well, here, provisional is this uh, temporary victory that Joab wins over the Ammonites. And why is it only temporary? Is there a final victory over the Arameans? There is. And in verses 15 to 19, David brings that uh, definitive or final triumph over the Syrians or the Arameans. Uh, himself. All right, so verses 15 to 19 are the uh, final or complete defeat of the Arameans at the hands of David. In fact, you will notice that in verse 15, the term Aramean or Syrian is matched by the term Syrian or Aramean in verse 19 and sandwiched in between verses 15 and 19 is David himself. Even as sandwiched between verses 6 and 14 are Joab or Joab and Abishai. Now let's notice one more thing. In chapter 10, verse 6, we once again have that term, uh, the Ammonites, sons of Ammon, and the phrase, David sends Joab. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1, we again find that term, sons of Ammon, and the phrase, David Sends Joab. I had said before that chapter 10 is laying the ground or opening the way to the siege of Rabbah and the sons of Ammon. And now you see how the narrator has structured that relationship in order to make you look prospectively beyond 
the events of chapter 10 to their outcome, to their result. Namely, David is going to send Joab again. As he sent them against the sons of Ammon in chapter 10, he is going to send them against the sons of Ammon in chapter 11, verse 1. But David does not go with Joab. Even, if you will notice, David did not go with Joab in chapter 10, verses 6 to 14. I want you to tuck that away in the back of your mind as we think about the opening of chapter 11. I want you to keep as much as you can in front of you these structural brackets and parallels and consider what the place or role of the 10th chapter of 2 Samuel is in the unfolding narrative of David's career. This is a chapter which in many ways baffles. It baffles because it looks as if it's a duplication of 2 Samuel 8. All of the geographical locations are repeated and yet interrupted by the Mephibosheth narrative, the repetition of what occurred in 8 here again in chapter 10 seems to follow another chronological event, namely David having a kind of rest from his warfare in dealing with Mephibosheth at his table. And so the liberals say this is, of course, an editor's mistake. He has forgotten that he already told the story of the conquest of the Ammonites and the Arameans in chapter 8, and he repeats it because he was an editor that didn't have a copy of that previous original version in chapter 8, and so he inserted his own record of it, and it turned out that he duplicated what had already been put in the text. Now, I recognize the similarity between chapter 8 and chapter 10, but I'm afraid I'm not a liberal and I cannot go down the road of saying we have a redactor's error or a copyist mistake. There is something going on here in terms of this pattern, which may well be chronological, namely David fought in chapter 8 and David and Joab had to fight again in chapter 10. Even after the apparent consolidation of chapter 9. I am not ready to dismiss that as a possibility any more than I am ready to dismiss two entries of Jesus into Jerusalem in which he cleanses the temple. I am not ready to say that when Jesus cleanses the temple in the fourth gospel, John chapter 2, that in fact John has made a mistake and moved up the cleansing of the temple which occurs in the synoptic gospels during Palm Sunday, at the end of Jesus' earthly career. 
Now, I'm not prepared to say that that duplication is a mistake or that that duplication is out of chronological order because of John's theological purpose. I grant you that John does have a theological purpose in placing the cleansing of the temple in chapter 2, but he does it because it happened. Jesus did cleanse the temple at the beginning of his ministry in Jerusalem, and he did it again at the end of his ministry in Jerusalem. And you think it is inconceivable for something to go and throw out the money changers in one year and three years later do the same thing again? Huh? How many of us would like every three years to throw out some tax collectors? Let alone some political rulers. Well, at any rate, you understand my principle here. If there is an apparent duplication in the narrative, I've got to look deeper than the simplistic argument that all liberals throw up at you. Aha, you see, we've got a mistake here. What shallow, pitiful thinking. As if they can't ask a theological question, a narrative question, a literary question, about what the writer has in mind, as if their mind is so great that the mind of John and the synoptic writers could never be as great as theirs because they know he made a mistake, because they're smart Ph.D. liberals, right? They're the teachers in the university system. They've got seminary degrees, right? You don't argue with them. They're right. They write books. They publish articles. They're infallible. Wrong. I am not infallible. No professor in Northwest Theological Seminary is infallible. Please correct us when you see us making a mistake, because we do. But we are not operating under divine inspiration, and that's the difference between us and the writer of Scripture. So, though I cannot solve the challenge of the apparent duplication between 2 Samuel 8 and 10, I lean towards a chronological advance and development, though I can't put my finger on why it's there. I don't have all the answers, and I'm not ashamed to tell you that. And any preacher or theologian who does think they have all the answers is a liar. He doesn't know as much as God knows, and he ought to be humble enough to tell you that. And when you drive him into a corner with a question he can't answer, he should say, I don't know the answer to the question, and if I can't find it out, I'll just have to say it's unanswerable. After all, do you know the question? Do you know the answer to the question of the origin of evil? Do you? Can you answer that? Tell me, what's the question of the origin of evil? That's the answer to that question. How can God be perfectly good and yet evil exists in the universe? What's the answer to that question? You are silent. Good. Very good. You are standing with Augustine and Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and all the great Calvinists and, in fact, all the great Orthodox Christians down to the history of the church. So we don't know what the answer to the problem of evil is. And they tried and they've worked at it and they failed miserably. And perhaps some of you have heard me say that my private opinion is that you won't understand the answer to that question even in eternity and in glory because your little pea brain, even glorified, can't hold on to it. It's only a question that an infinite brain can solve. And you haven't got one. 
And so there are going to be mysteries even in heaven. There are going to be things in heaven you don't know because God's going to know more than you do, even there. Or else he wouldn't be God, would he? He wouldn't be the creator. He wouldn't be all-knowing. Even in heaven, you're not going to be omniscient. Do you think? Do you think? You're going to be learning for eternity, but you're never going to be as smart as he is, as knowing, all-knowing as he is. And you will humbly fall at his footstool and say, omniscient God, teach me more. And you will learn marvelously, wonderfully learn forever and ever, but he will still know more than you know. So, the fact that I can't solve this conundrum about the proper chronology and definitive explanation of the relationship between 2 Samuel 8 and 10 it's just simply a testimony that Denison's a peewit and he doesn't have an infinite brain. And you can quote me because that's absolutely true. I am a creature. Now, do you have any observations or comments on any of that? Some of that was obiter dicta. Uh, you know, maybe it stimulated some other obiter dicta questions in your own mind. On the text or off the text or whatever? All right, we're poised then here at the end of chapter 10 because our narrator has given us these markers that show that not only is a structural similarity between the outline of 8, 9, and 10 compared to 11, 12, and the end of 12, but he is also opening the door to Rabbah and the sons of Ammon that we thought we had closed there in chapter 10. And so he frames this significant uh, narrative of David's career by the result or the outcome of this conflict in uh, chapter uh, 10 particularly and chapter eight remote, chapter ten approximately, and chapter uh, eight remotely. We have here a series of sequential ripple layers or ripple layer narratives, and I want to uh, put it all together at the end of this presentation in this hour. But the ripple effects of the narrative layers coalesce in this chapter. In 2 Samuel 11, they coalesce to shift the tone of the entire David narrative. Since Bathsheba came, nothing is the same. Since Bathsheba came, nothing is the same. We've already noted the narrator's device of framing this narrative with another narrative layer. The siege of Rabbah in the first verse of this 11th chapter is the siege of Rabbah that concludes this narrative sandwich in chapter 12, 26 to 31. This is an intentional 
literary framework setting aside the David Bathsheba debacle at the center of the sandwich device. The royal career of David has ebbed, ebbed forth like ripples on a pond to place him in Jerusalem in shalom, displaying hesed or merciful kindness out of God's covenant relationship with him as a father to a son with the scepter of David's throne reaching from the Negev of the Arabah to the Euphrates, the river. What would be more delightful? What would be more delightful, more glorifying to God, more satisfying to David himself than to rule in peace, in shalom, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, to rule over the flock of God, administering loving kindness, hesed, to the defenders of his nation as well as the weak, the vulnerable, the lame among his people. What would be more glorifying to God than drawing in the nations, drawing in the Gentiles under the rule of the Lord from the city of Mount Zion? What could be more delightfully glorifying to God? But what do we find? Sin taking opportunity produced in him lust of every kind. Romans 7 verse 8. He finds the principle that evil is present in him. A different law waging war against the law of his mind in the members of his body, making him a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in his members. Romans 7, 21 and 23. From within, out of the heart of men proceed fornications, adulteries, murders, Deeds of coveting and wickedness, all these things proceed from within. Mark seven twenty one to twenty three, parallel Matthew fifteen, eighteen to twenty. David's sin with Bathsheba begins in his heart. It begins in his mind. It begins in his imagination. It begins in his will. It begins in his desire. It begins in his mental pictures. It begins in his covetousness. David's sin begins inside him 
before it seduces the body of Bathsheba outside him. This is a wicked act. It is a wicked act arising from a wicked desire and all from a heart trapped in the wickedness of original sin and actual sin. There is no sanitizing David's act. There is no free pass for what he does here. The psychology of sin, the psychology of sin is before us with this chapter. The psychology of how sin perceives and sin conceives lust and sin deceives and sin achieves as sin receives that which delights it most at that moment. Do not ever imagine that sin is not delightful at the moment that it is chosen. And that is reason it is chosen. It is chosen because it is the most delightful thing that that soul wants at that moment. It is enjoyable. Sin in the mind, contemplating, feeds the will, choosing, impels the body, acting upon what the mind perceives and the will chooses. There is no act of adultery without the free choice to commit adultery. There is no act of adultery without the willful desire and choice of adultery, without the thinking, without the seeing, without the planning, without the wanting adultery. There is no act without the want. All of the psychology of sin is present in the adultery of David and Bathsheba. Indeed, there are layers here, rippling layers of how the mind and the heart and the body desires, conceives, proceeds, to sin. If Rabbah is under siege, sin has laid siege to David's soul. Let's not be naive about the process of what produces a sin. It starts inside. That's where it all begins. Our culture has forgotten that. 
Our culture has closed its eyes in denial of that. And yet, you know, because Jesus tells you, you know, that every sin comes from within. An evil heart produces an evil act. Now, the narrative frame of Rabbah around Jerusalem provides the rippling layers of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. These ripples are layers proximate and remote. Here we have that vocabulary again. Proximately, we have Jerusalem. Remotely, we have what? Rabbah. Proximately, we have Bathsheba. Remotely, we have Uriah. Very good. Proximately, we have David's bed. Remotely, we have Uriah and Bathsheba's bed. The proximate and remote factors once again ripple into this narrative. Verse 1 is the overture to this symphony of horrors. Verse 1 is the prelude to this orchestrated dissonance of adultery and murder. The remote and the proximate vectors are here in this verse as well. The clash of the narrative ripples. David stays home in Jerusalem. Joab ventures far off to Rabbah. The clash of the proximate and remote vectors collapses into the downward spiral of David's career. His character changes. From 2 Samuel 11, how has David become not David? Notice he stays at home while his army sallies out to fight. David is acting out of character. Why? Why does he stay at home while his army takes the field? Our narrator does not tell us. Why he does it is not revealed that he does it is enough for the narrator. Though at the end of this presentation, I want to make some suggestions about why it happens narratively. Verse 2. He rises from his bed, his sleepless bed, 
in his house and looks to her house and lusts for her in his bed, his adulterous bed, the remote and the proximate return in verse 2. His sleepless eyes roam about and fixate on an object sleep would have kept from his roaming eyes. Would to God he had stayed asleep. Do not this king's eyes have wives' bodies aplenty to feast his eyes? How many women does he have in his harem? But no, the glance, he saw a woman bathing, the glance becomes a gaze, a glance becomes a fixed, leering gaze. She was beautiful to look at and he's fixated on her. He drinks in this bathing beauty and says to himself, I must have her. Notice the twofold mention of the view from the rooftop, verse 2. David walks on the roof, Lord and King of all he surveys. David looks down from the roof. She whom he surveys, he has already seduced as Lord and King. From the rooftop, David already dominates Bathsheba. This narrator wants you to see what is happening. The proximate and remote ripples overlap again. His house, verse 2. Her house, verse 2. Note it's explicit in verse 4. His house, proximate. Her house, remote. And to overcome the distance, to overcome the spatial distance between his house near at hand, and her house, remotely distant, he sends, verse 3, and inquires, and he sends, verse 4, and takes. Remote distance reduced by proximate investigation and conjugation. Proximate and remote lie beneath the narrator's spatial imagery. Verse 3 provides the woman's biography. First, her name. Second, her patronymic, family of Eliam, her father. Third, her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Why does David care? Is he worried about contracting some STD from a common street prostitute? And so he wants a biographical 
listing of her patrimony and so on? Is that the reason it's here? Is he ensuring that the object of his lust has a bio deserving of his royal lust? She is a wife. Notice that in the verse. She is a wife, but it doesn't stop him. She belongs to the bed of one of his mighty men. See 2 Samuel 23, one of the 37 elite corps of bodyguards, mercenaries, courageous and fearless warriors whom David had hand-picked. And this one, Uriah the Hittite, this one is not only a foreign mercenary, this one is a convert. He is a believer. He is a lover of the ark of God. Notice in verse 11 what he mentions first. The first thing out of his mouth is the ark of the Lord. It has first place in Uriah's heart, even as it has first place on his lips. And it has first place on his lips and in his heart because God's grace has first place in his life. Oh, you never thought of this Hittite as a believer? I've got news for you. How do you explain this man's character? How do you explain Uriah's steadfast refusal to David's satanic temptation? How do you explain it if it is not because of the grace of God? How do you explain his refusal of David's fawning hypocrisy? How do you explain Uriah's resolve, his steadfast, unmovable resolve not to be unfaithful, not to be unfaithful to his duty to his Lord, not to be unfaithful to his duty to his comrades in arms, not to be unfaithful to his duty to his soldier's vow? How do you explain Uriah's character except that by the grace of God, He was what he had become, a lover of the ark of the Lord. David is tempted to refuse his duty as king and behave like a common fornicating tramp with another man's wife while Uriah refuses his duty to his wife, though David tempts him three times to it by the offer of her body. Uriah will not lie in his bed with his wife as his wife has lain in David's bed. How do you account for such character, such dignity, such steadfast loyalty save by the transforming grace of God. I don't know how you can account for it any other way. 
It is simply impossible. This man shines because of the grace of God that has found him. We have noted the his house, king's house, verse 2, her house, verse 4, bracket, which links the spatial motif. Verse 4 also contains a word that may color this incident. Notice David took her. The Hebrew verb can have the sense of took her forcibly, overpowered her. Did David rape Bathsheba? I don't think so. I don't think so. But the nagging question about Bathsheba's complicity, Bathsheba's complicity in this adulterous tryst is underscored by the following phrase, when she came to him. When she came to him. This suggests voluntary, compliant, equally adulterous amours in Bathsheba. But I pause here to note the current feminist interpretation of the story. The feminists maintain that Bathsheba is a victim. She is overpowered by the dominant, prowling, chauvinistic male. There is some justification for that view in the verb took her. But the feminist agenda cannot be permitted to omit the whole story, the entire context. Bathsheba may be, in fact, as liberated a woman, even a liberated married woman, as swinging feminists admire. She was happy to come to the bed of the king and display her sexual liberation by conquering him with her wiles. Not to mention her beautiful body. There are women who are delighted to be bedded by a king or a president of the United States, Marilyn Monroe, by John F. Kennedy in the White House. A powerful businessman, William Randolph Hearst and his paramour, see the movie Citizen Kane by Orson Welles. It is a brilliant, brilliant paradigm. A mobster, Bonnie and Clyde. A charismatic social icon, prostitutes frequented by Martin Luther King Jr. A high-profile minister, the hooker who snagged the Reverend Jimmy Swaggart. It gives such women a high, a thrill, an adrenaline rush, the status of seducing the rich and powerful with that most seductive of female wiles. Was that what motivated Bathsheba as she made her way from her house remote to David's house proximate, from her bath to his bed? 
My final observation on this particular point, if in fact David did force her or overpower her, where are the screams of outrage? Where is the protest of innocence and the cry for help? Bathsheba does not protest. No, she raises no protest to David's summons, to David's proposition, to David's lying with her, to David's house and David's bed. She makes no protest whatsoever. Methinks silence speaks collaboration. Methinks silence speaks complicity. Methinks silence speaks cooperation. An adulterous mind, heart, and body in a married woman. Today, we even have TV series about these kind of women. And over 20 million Americans tune in each week for the next desperate episode. We have elaborated the occasion of this incident, verse 1, as well as the conjugation, which results, verses 2 to 4, We turn now to the complication, verse 5. I'm pregnant! Now that really does complicate things, doesn't it? Notice the verb sent. The same verb which appears in verse 3 and verse 4. David sends to induce her. David sends to entice her. Does Bathsheba send to entice David? David propositioned her. Is she propositioning David? I'm pregnant. Cover this thing up. Do something. It's not my husband's child. He's been away fighting at Rabah. It's not Uriah's child. I have purified myself from my monthly uncleanness. That's what she was doing when she was bathing in verse 2. The significance underscored in verse 4 again, so as to place the blame squarely on David and her. And thus following the occasion, the conjugation, the complication is the machination, verses 6 to 13. David sends, oh, there's that verb again, verse 6. That verb by which the distance between the proximate and the remote is overcome. The remote brought within the arena of the proximate. David sends and the plot to cover up his sin takes form. The formation of David's machination will require cooperation. Cooperation and collusion. Send to Joab. Ah, Joab. The ever compliant henchman. Now drawn into David's plot as he had himself plotted against David in the death, the treacherous, murderous death of Abner. It will take a treacherous murderer to assist with the execution of David's murderous scheme. It will take a treacherous murderer 
to assist David's murderous scheme. And Joab, Joab is the man. Joab is the man. What a scheme it is. It's perfect. Uriah comes home for R&R. Part of R&R, of course, a visit to the bed of his wife, whom he has not seen or visited since he left for war. Such a deal. Who could resist such an offer? Give him a present. Wine him and dine him. And send him home to his ever-loving wife. No sweat. Or now I can wipe the sweat from my royal brow. It's perfect. It's perfect. Everyone will assume it's Uriah's child. After all, such a beauty who tempted me, who delighted me, how could her husband, whom she must delight frequently, how could her husband resist? I couldn't. Surely he won't. And David congratulates himself on the brilliance of his scheme to hide, to cover up, to conceal the act known only to himself and Bathsheba. No one will know the difference. I'm home free. I don't even have to find a back alley abortionist. Nor do I have to find the local planned parenthood woman's right to lose clinic. And all the best laid plans of mice and men. But this Uriah, David, David has not ever met a man like this. This Uriah. Though he picked him for his band of mighty men, he will now learn the mighty character of this man, this foreign-born man, the character of this stranger and pilgrim from the Hittites who has taken refuge in Zion, sought refuge in the Lord's land, taken his place under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty in the promised land of God. Uriah comes to David, verse 7, the space between remote Rabbah and proximate David's house is collapsed. Uriah stands in David's venue. Uriah stands in the arena where David has violated Uriah's wife. Spatial movement, our narrator's genius. David is solicitous. David is very solicitous, ostensibly concerned with the welfare of his commander-in-chief, Joab, the welfare of his army, the people, the welfare of the conflict. The state of the war. 
David is very solicitous. Three times the Hebrew word for welfare. It is in the Hebrew shalom. There's an irony, isn't it? Three times the Hebrew word for welfare, shalom, is repeated in this verse. Three times as if to emphatically underscore David's fawning hypocrisy. Don't think this narrator doesn't repeat things in order to make points. Shalom was to be the mark of David's kingdom. David uses the term here like a duplicitous politician who cries, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Neville Chamberlain and the Munich Pact, Richard Nixon hot after detente, and the last helicopter after Saigon, and then the killing fields in South Vietnam. Three million people butchered. Because he abandoned them. Bill Clinton's dalliance with women, while Madeleine Albright and Janet Reno compromised America's national security, allowing immigrant terrorists bent on murder and mayhem, the first World Trade Center bombing. Don't forget it. Don't ever forget it when you ask the question of why we are where we are now. David even sweetens the deal. Take a leave, Uriah. I'll give you a furlough. A furlough from the war at the front. Go on home. Refresh yourself. And by the way, here's a little gift as a token of our royal gratitude for your military service. Beware of duplicitous kings bearing gifts. But David doesn't know the character of this man. David does not know the character of this man, but he's going to learn. At the end of verse 8, David is certain his scheme to cover up his adultery is a cinch. But Uriah did not go down to his house, verse 9. He did not go down, verse 10, 8. No, he did not go down to his vice, to his house, verse 10b. Three times he did not go down. He did not go down. He did not go down. He did not go down, verses 9 and 10. Three times David inquires about Shalom. Shalom, 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 verse 7. Does our narrator have a faith in the rule of threes? Contrast between hypocrisy and loyalty. Stark. Stark to the point of threefold duplication and replication. 
David's perfect cover-up is so far a failure. Sin is not cooperating with sin. And so sin plots even more deeply. As David is drawn into the sin of adultery, now one sin leads to another. He hypocritically feigns interest in Uriah. He hypocritically feigns interest in the army. He hypocritically feigns interest in Joab's welfare. Adultery has now led to hypocrisy. What more? What further depths of iniquity can David plumb? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. But Uriah does not cooperate. All I need is for this guy to go home to his wife, but he won't. He sleeps with my servants outside the door of my palace in the street, in the street, when he could have that luscious body. What's wrong with this guy? I'll sweeten the deal. I'll sweeten the deal. Now, look here, Uriah. You had a long journey. It's a fur piece from Rabah to my palace. You've got to be tired. I'm looking forward to coming home to your beautiful wife. Why don't you go down to your house and cheer your wife as you cheer yourself? I'm really concerned as your king. I want you to chill out. But, of course, David isn't concerned for Uriah at all. He's dissembling with rhetorical questions in verse 10. Those are rhetorical questions. They are dissembling hypocritical rhetorical questions. And the narrator wants you to feel the hypocrisy of them. That's the reason he makes them rhetorical. Notice the past tense of the verbs, which underscored David's amazement that Uriah could resist what he could not, Bathsheba's beauty. But if David is ever duplicitous in verse 10, as he was in verses 7 and 8, Uriah is not duplicitous in verse 11. Honest, truthful Uriah replies honestly and truthfully to David's fake display of concern and benevolence. The narrative layers of the life of Uriah are layer upon layer of loyalty and duty and identification. You must see this because it's what defines Uriah. Identification. He identifies with the ark of the Lord first. That is of supreme importance to the man. The narrative layer of the ark's story is first and foremost in Uriah's mind and heart. Uriah's story is the story of being covered by the Lord who dwells between the cherubim. 
the Lord who covers over the sins of his children, even strangers and pilgrims. The Lord who covers over their sins with the blood of covering, with the blood of the mercy seat upon the ark of the Lord. Uriah's narrative interfaces with the narrative of the Ark of the Covenant. Rippling layers of narrative overlap and interface. Or do you think that's just an accident that the first thing out of his mouth is the Ark of the Lord? I've got news for you. It is revelatory. It is the narrator under inspiration revealing to you what is driving the man. It is not incidental or it wouldn't be first. And then Uriah remembers his buddies. All Israel and Judah is bivouacked in tents in the fields outside Rabbah. How can I enjoy my house, my wife, when my army buddies are sleeping on the ground in the fields eating K rations? My commander-in-chief, Joab. You know General Joab, don't you, King David? My commander-in-chief is sleeping in the field with us, making our situation his own situation. He's identifying with us. I just can't sleep indoors with my wife when my job as a soldier requires solidarity with the Corps. And the Corps. And the Corps. Let me steal Douglas MacArthur's last speech at West Point. By your life, great king, by your life, I will not accept a privilege not available to my comrades at the front. I will not. David's scheme is a failure for the second time. Even the king of Israel cannot manipulate this loyal Soldier, no, not even with the prospect of his beautiful wife's body. So if at first you don't succeed, David, try one more time. Okay, Uriah, be cool. You just hang around and relax, man, for the rest of the day. Hang out with me. Let's hang. All right. Oh, and by the way, would you like to have lunch with me? How about a drink, Uriah? After all, we got to pass the time doing something. I, I have this wine. I have this wine cellar where I've got this vintage Philistine vino. Samson brought it back from Gaza 200 years ago. I've been saving it for just the right occasion. How about a toast? And so having failed to proposition Uriah into covering up his adultery... Having failed to manipulate Uriah into visiting his house and his wife, David gets him drunk. 
Like some gangster who wants his victim to look at as if it's his own fault that he's dead, David pours liquor into Uriah and gets him stone drunk. But even a drunken Uriah acts in character. He goes back out to the servants at the doorway to David's house and sleeps off the booze with them in the street. He does not go down to his house, nor does he go down to the bed of his beautiful wife. David is stymied. His perfect cover-up has failed. Sin has only begotten more sin. Three strikes and you're out, David. Oh, no, I'm not, says David. In the rippling layers of the narrative of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah are stuck in the proximate remote paradigm. Uriah will not go down to his wife or his house. He remains remote from his conjugal rights, even though he is in the house where those conjugal rights have been proximately sullied and violated. The man who has stolen his wife tries to steal his integrity. Uriah will not. The man who has stolen his wife tries to steal his loyalty. Uriah will not. The man who has stolen his wife tries to steal his chastity, his sexual abstinence during war. Uriah will not. Uriah will not cooperate with David's sin. Uriah will not cooperate with David's plot. Uriah will not cooperate with David's suborning and scapegoating his adulterous act. Such is the character of Uriah. Noble, honest, faithful, devout, believing Uriah the Hittite. What low treachery has David added to his lechery? This man, after God's own heart, now displaying the apparent character of one whose father is the devil. There is no eschatological kingdom possible in this miserable sinner, this miserable adulterer, this miserable schemer, manipulator, Corrupter of a loyal, genuine believer. Indeed, this is damnable sin, and David will rue the day. He will rue the day when sin, taking occasion by lust, revived, and he, King David, royal King David, died. Thou art the man. Now, I suggested that our narrator does not tell us the motivation for David's remaining in Jerusalem in verse 1 of the opening of this incident, chapter 11. But I want to return to this paradigm that I outlined at the beginning of our discussion of chapter 10. I want to think through this paradigm in terms of the rippling layers of narrative progression. 
We've already noted the similarity between 8 and 10 in the war campaigns against Ammonites and the Arameans. We have noted the bracket which surrounds the David and Bathsheba incident, the siege of Rabah that bookends this debacle. What is sandwiched in between? Chapter 9, in this case, chapter 11, 2 to 12, 25, in the second case. Why is our narrator bracketed or sandwiched these two incidents? We ask ourselves the question, is there anything which is common to both of them? And the answer is, They both take place in Jerusalem. (coughs) But is our narrator sandwiching events in Jerusalem in chapter 9 and in chapter 11, 2 and following simply coincidentally? Or accidentally? Or is he sandwiching them for narrative theological reasons? Let us recall that this event in Jerusalem is an event of Hesed. David showing benevolent loving kindness to a lame son of Jonathan. Is David showing Hesed here? He is not. He is being vicious and murderous, and adulterous. The bracket that squeezes Jerusalem as a location of action in this sequence is a bracket of stark contrast. The narrator is drawing your attention to the character reversal in David. And that's the reason he sandwiches Jerusalem in these two panels. But there is more here. The contrast which emerges between these two sandwiched chapters is a contrast which develops or flows out of the narrative layers of these five chapters. Now, I'll give you a minute if you haven't been able to copy what we have done here. But if you're with me, I'm going to erase it and I'm going to put up some more information. Okay? The contrastive element as the narrative ripples unfold. Okay, we begin back with chapter 8. in which David 
goes out to campaign against the Ammonites and the Aramaeans. David himself, in chapter 8, acts against the enemies of his empire, his kingdom. In chapter 10, verse 7, remember that 8 and 10 are linked by this theme of campaigns against the Ammonites and the Arameans. In chapter 10, verse 7, David sends, remember that verb sends, David sends Joab. We notice a difference. In chapter 10, verse 17, once again, the same theme of these military campaigns against now this definitive battle with the Arameans, David himself goes out to war. In chapter 11, verse 1, what do we read? We read, David sends Joab. And in chapter 12, 27, you must look at that verse, chapter 12, verse 27. Joab sends for David. Aha. Aha. David is present here in the campaign and on the field. David is absent here. David is present here. David is absent here. And what happens in 1227? David is summoned by Joab. And now do you see why our narrator has built up these layers from chapter 8 through chapter 12? This narrative record moves from David fully present and engaged, chapter 8, to David sometimes absent and sometimes present, not fully engaged in chapter 10, to David fully absent and not fully engaged until summoned in chapter 11 and 12. Do you see what the narrator is doing? He is rolling these layers of rippling reflection upon David's action in order to show you what is happening to David in his character. That he is moving from being fully engaged to being ambiguously engaged, sometimes there, sometimes not, to be fully absent 
and then to being manipulated by Joab. The steady narrative decline of David as it is unfolding from chapter 8 on. Decline of David as the leader of his army in subduing the enemies of his kingdom. And as he displays a diminishing role, a diminishing role in the defense of his own borders, so there emerges the increasing role of others who control him. By the time of the end of the siege of Rabbah in chapter 12, 27, David, the David manipulator is Joab, whose leverage over this king is predicated on his own cooperation with David in the murder of Uriah. Who has become complicit now? And has got David under his thumb. The narrative paradigm unfolds in rippling layers of decline for David. Even as the stark contrast of David's actions in Jerusalem. Chapter 9 contrasted with chapter 11, 2 to 12, 25. The stark contrast of David's actions in Jerusalem shows David the opposite of a king administering hesed, shows David as a royal adulterer and a royal murderer whose future has now been altered because of his egregious sin. All right, we'll pick up the narrative next week and finish the David and Bathsheba story. Lord willing, chapter 11 and chapter 12. Do you have any questions about any part of uh, this presentation this evening? Any comments you'd like to make? I've already admitted I'm not infallible, and so... Scott? You made a comment about his harem several chapters ago and how you thought that was the beginning of David's slide. Do you see any connection narratively between that and this? I made that as a tentative statement, uh, and I, I, I'll stick with it as a tentative statement. Uh, I'm not averse to it having some uh, foreshadowing power in the narrative. In other words, there's something going on in the listing of the multiple wives, which is portentous. It's ominous. So the narrator may be foreshadowing an ominous future situation, which is going to complicate David's own character. It certainly does underscore the fact that he had a high sex drive, let's face it. Bathsheba was invited over. <clears throat> He's the king. How could she say no? Well, she couldn't say no to the ostensible invitation. But when she sees what's up, she's supposed to do what 
Tamar will do in chapter 13. And she does it. So she's very happy to be bedded by the king. Or, you, you wives invited to a party and they open the bedrooms and say wife swapping is, uh, and what are you going to do? Are you going to go along with the invitation? Huh? Huh? Is that what you're going to do? You don't stand your ground and scream and say, no, you're not going to violate me. I'm a married woman. Get away from me, you pig. I don't care if you are the king. You're a pig king. You might do that today, but would you do it in that culture? Uh, Tamar does. Don't defile me. Don't do this evil thing. Two chapters later, here we've got a daughter who's screaming about her chastity, her virginity, and her innocence. Don't do this to me. Yeah, not the king. King's daughter, king's son, royal house. He's claiming royal privilege. She's even she's even showing him that this shouldn't be done amongst the king's household. No, come on. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the President of the United States, King of the World, or Emperor Julius Caesar. You don't have the right to do this. And any woman that thinks that they have the right to do it just because of their position is playing the same game. Ling. Why doesn't the Old Testament law of stoning the adulterer apply to David? It did. It did. But he did get a free pass on that one. He should have been stoned. Both of them should have been stoned. The fact that it doesn't happen doesn't mean that the law has been, uh, the, the law's not uh, valid. It means that the law's in abeyance and nobody's paying attention to it. Was there a cover up? Pardon? I mean, obviously there's an attempt to cover something. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was wondering if somebody would press me on the fact that I said that it's a sin known only to David and Bathsheba. Obviously, the messengers had to know something about this, right? Nathan, Nathan gets it by divine inspiration, I think, but nonetheless, or divine revelation, I should say. But nonetheless, uh, you know, in, in any royal court, you don't keep these things quiet for long. Come on, what about Henry VIII and all his escapades, let alone anybody else? Is it because he is a recipient of the I'm not going to let David get away with any uh, any free pass or liberty uh, at this point. I will allow him after Psalm 51, but not before. Yeah, it's, it's evidence of the renewing grace, the reviving grace in his own life so that he is prostrate in repentance. And the beautiful psalm is a beautiful description of his being cut to the quick. And the fact that he is acknowledging that sin, acknowledging it poignantly and honestly and so on. <clears throat> Um, so the, the grace of God has not abandoned his heart, even in the midst of adultery and murder. I admit that. But I don't want to let him off the hook 
of the exceeding sinfulness of sin of which he's involved in the lead up to this. And that's one of the reasons I'm not going to focus so much on the grace, though I do admit it's there. But I don't want to focus on it. I want us to come to grips with the psychology of what he's doing and how heinous this thing is. He is completely devious, wicked, plotting, scheming, you know, to commit adultery with another man's wife. Bad enough, bad enough. But then to murder the man, to murder him, king of Israel. This is horrendous. No, I won't cut him any slack. No, I agree. I agree. And, and the fact that he does is either, as you suggested, connived, bribed, or just, you know, he got a, he got a pass on a, on a point uh, that he shouldn't have had a pass on. Of course, this happens numerous times in the Old Testament. Well, the suggestion in Psalm 51 is that he places himself before God's judgment seat alone, uh, which seems to be almost a reflection that that position before God's judgment seat is even greater than uh, the uh, carrying out of the Old Testament uh, punishments. In the human court. Yeah, I I agree with that in principle. Still, one raises the question whether, as a guilty sinner, he should not have appealed for the punishment that the law required, even submitting himself to it because he deserved it. I mean, the son of Sam Killer will not take probation. He won't take probation because he's admitted, even though he's become a Christian in jail. He's admitted that he deserves death. He does not want to be released. They won't execute him. He, he knows he should be executed, but uh, uh, he can't get execution, which he knows he deserves. There are cases in which uh, criminals who have been guilty of murder have become converted in prison and said, execute me. There's a famous case in Indiana about 40 years ago in which a man demanded to be put to death because that's what God required. The son of Sam has said that, but they won't do it because there's no death penalty in New York. <clears throat> but he won't take probation. He's refused probation every time he's come up and hear it, up for a hearing. That's a man of character. I mean, I mean, that's a man of transformed character. I, pre- I respect that. I'm not necessarily saying I respect all of his Arminian doctrines, but nonetheless, <clears throat> I certainly respect that testimony. It takes a lot of courage to stand in front of a court and say, I'm guilty, Your Honor. Punish me. I deserve it. Our court system doesn't work that way. I'm not guilty. I don't know. You, you could blast them away in the street and it could be on, uh, you know, CNN. I'm not guilty. I didn't do that. You, ca- you, you found detonating powder in my panties? You know, the pan- I'm not guilty. The panty bar, I'm not guilty. I didn't do that, no. Do you think that, you know, he's been given this covenant, obviously, in chapter 7, and he's been given this promise of the son that will sit on his throne forever. Do you think, then, that the punishment that he receives with the death of his son with Bathsheba, or death of his child with Bathsheba, and and uh, further the uh, downfall of his sons Amnon and Absalom, are in that sense a uh, you know? Do you think that psychologically somewhere he recognizes that this? Adultery and murderous act uh, on his part um, perhaps finds its 
punishment if not in his death um, in the demise of his line? Isn't that what Nathan says to him? <clears throat> he says to him, he won't shake it. <clears throat> It'll haunt his house. There are consequences to sin. There is retribution for sin. Don't dally with sin. You will pay a price. The grace of God is sufficient to overcome that. There is no sin which cannot be forgiven, even murder and adultery. Unforgivable sin accepted, whatever it is. But flee to grace. Hold on to Christ. Turn away from your sin and from that which entices you to it. Sin begins in the mind. Watch what your mind watches. Anything else? Thanks, Ling. Uh, It's a proper balance to suggest that David is uh, uh, a child of grace, and we want to to remember that. Uh, At the same time, I don't want to lose the sting of his descent into virtually into the pit of hell. Virtually. I said virtually. 